Welcome to Biology for Bastards, teaching biology in the most profane way you've ever seen or heard. I'm your host, John Doty. Thanks for listening. This season is all about evolution, and we are on chapter six, which is about phenotypic evolution and the evolution of fucking phenotypes, because it's phenotypic evolutions. Go fucking figure feel like that's my catchphrase this season. Go fucking figure. So, let's dive right in. When we're talking about phenotypes, what we're really going to be focusing on are what's known as quantitative traits, sometimes known as polygenic traits. It's the same fucking thing. And these traits will vary continuously across a spectrum and are going to be affected by several and sometimes thousands of different loci. So just a bunch of fucking genes working on the same traits. That's a quantitative trait. Um, So what we have when we have all these traits or all this shit for one trait mapped out, um, we get what's known as a phenotypic variance. And phenotypic variance is just the variance in the measurements of the trait in a population. It is... Um, caused by both genetic and environmental cases or causes, not cases. Um, And what this idea of variance is, it's a statistics term and it's just the amount of dispersion around the mean for whatever the fuck you're looking at. And phenotypes are going to follow most often than not, a normal distribution, which will form a Gaussian or a bell-shaped curve. Same fucking thing. It's a a little hill. Low on both ends, tall in the middle. It's a fucking bell curve. If you don't know what a bell curve is, um, go figure that out and then come back because I'll confuse the shit out of you talking about all the stuff we're going to talk about if you don't understand what a fuck a bell curve is. Now, When we have multiple loci affecting a single trait, changes in the allele frequency can can drastically change genotype frequencies and therefore change the the distribution, fuck, distribution of that trait. So what that really means and why that's really important is you can have these quantitative traits evolving to make entirely new phenotypes using only the shit that you already have in the population. You don't have to have new mutations to get new phenotypes. You just have to have changes in the frequency of maybe one of the loci. In this big collection of loci that are affecting the shit, and just one of these becoming more common than another, changes how the fucking trait actually gets expressed. So, um, you don't necessarily have to have new mutations to have these quantitative traits evolving. Now, when it comes to selection on these quantitative traits, you can form this thing known as a fitness function. And this this was something I was trying to find a good picture of so I can include on the PowerPoint, which is found on biologyforbastards.com. Just a little plug for the website. Um, but I couldn't find a really good one. Uh, the book 
that we're using, Evolution by Futuyama and Kirkpatrick, has a couple really good ones, but I didn't have a way to take them from there and put them anyways. What the fuck ever. Um, but what a fitness function does is it is a way to quantify how selection is going to act on a quantitative trait. On the x-axis of the function is the value of the trait. So just the measurement of whatever trait you're fucking dealing with. And the y-axis is the expected fitness for individuals with that given phenotype. So based on that, you can see where the expected fitness is going to be the greatest, and that's where things are going to kind of evolve towards. Now, um, when selection is working on one of those quantitative traits, there's three main ways that selection can change that bell curve. We have directional selection, stabilizing selection, and disruptive selection. Directional selection is when selection favors either an increase or a decrease in a trait's mean. So individuals at one end of the spectrum are going to be more fit than individuals in the middle or at the other end. That's directional selection. Stabilizing selection favors individuals whose trait values are near the means populate near the population's mean. Got that flip-flopped in my brain. So what that does is it makes the graph skinnier, that bell curve skinnier, because our phenotypic variance is reduced, and this is one of the more common um, types of selection. Okay, so this is very common. And when you are talking about this and you have traits near the values that have the highest fitness, those, are, those traits are known as optimum phenotypes because they have the highest fitness. And then disruptive selection is basically the opposite of stabilizing selection, where the smallest and the largest individuals will have a higher fitness than individuals near the mean. So this increases phenotypic variance, and it rarely makes two distinct groups. What it does, it just makes the intermediates less common. So it's not completely pulling them apart to create two totally separate groups. It's giving you the same group, just with fewer intermediates. And using the fitness function and traits distributions are going to help you determine whether or not the selection you're talking about is directional, is stabilizing, or is um, disruptive. Okay? Cool. Now, um, you can actually use fitness functions, and this is why I was hoping I could find a really good one, um, to help visualize selection acting on more than one trait at a given time. So this just tells us what combinations of traits are going to have the higher fitness or lower fitness. And it leads to what's known as a correlation selection. And this is just something that favors a particular combination of traits. So this trait plus this trait is more favorable, is has a higher fitness than, say, the first trait with a different second trait. So maybe, like, small and sleek equals fast as opposed to being like small and chonky that's not going to be fast or being big and sleek not going to be as fast as being small and sleek so that's just kind of what that fuck 
is telling us. That was just the frivolous fuck I threw in there just for funsies. And I can do that because it's my fucking show. Fuck, 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 fuck. No point for those either. But it was fun. It's a little song. Called my song of fucks. Fuck, 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 fuck. Okay, moving on. Measuring the strength of directional selection. So we're going to focus on directional selection for a bit. And focus on selection gradients that measure the strength of directional selection acting on a trait. So this is going to be analogous to the selection coefficient for the alleles at a single locus. Um, but it's something a little bit different. We abbreviate it with beta, the letter beta. And its units are going to be like one over a unit of measurement. So one per foot or something, one per inch. Um, and we get this selection gradient by plotting the relative fitness values against the trait value. And if you have a positive selection gradient, it means the trait is going to increase. If you have a negative one, it's the fucking opposite. So they are going to decrease. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that brings us to this idea of adaptive landscapes. We talked about those last chapter. It also applies to quantitative traits where you are plotting the population's mean fitness against the mean value of the trait. So it's a little bit important to make a distinction here where a fitness function shows how the phenotype of an, of an individual affects its fitness while an adaptive landscape shows how the mean trait value in a population affects the population's mean fitness. So a fitness function is basically you're dealing with an individual and an adaptive landscape you're dealing with averages in the population. And this brings us to an equation. So I'll do my best to explain equations but this one is known as the breeder's equation because breeders have known about this for a very long time and have been able to manipulate it just as long as they've known about it. So, kind of putting this into words. We have the... Fuck, what are those called? Variable. Fuck. Variable called Z-bar. It's a delta Z-bar. So, delta is change, Z with a little bar above it. Um, it's the evolutionary change in the mean of a trait from a single generation of selection. That is going, that's our Z-bar. That will be equal to the product of the strength of directional selection and the amount of genetic variation. So the evolutionary change in the mean of a trait from a single generation of selection is Z-bar. The product of the strength of directional selection is S and the amount of genetic variation is H squared. So H squared is our traits heritability and it's really measured or it's determined by it's the slope of the regression line that relates the value of a trait in two parents to the value of the trait in their offspring. If you have an H squared value of zero, there's zero fucking resemblance between offspring and parents. And if you have an H squared value of one, the offspring look exactly like the parents. 
So the closer to one, the more similar the offspring is gonna look like the parents. Um, the value S is the amount of change in the mean of the trait caused by selection within a generation. And it is determined where it is equal to the difference between the mean of the population after selection and the mean of the population before selection. So kind of dumbing this down as I try to do with all these equations, we have Z bar, which is the change in the mean of the trait. It is the evolutionary change between one generation and the next. It is caused by the product of the trait's heritability and the change caused by selection within a generation. So, summing that up even more, the rate of evolution is going to depend on both the strength of inheritance, which is our h squared, and the strength of directional selection, which is s. So, z bar equals h squared s is one version of the Breeders' equation. There's another version. It's z bar is equal to g beta, where g is, well, b is our selection gradient that we've talked about just not too long ago. Uh, that was the one over unit of measurement thing. Okay, so that's our beta, and g in this case is the additive genetic variance. What the fuck does that mean? It's part of the phenotypic variation that is caused by genetic variation and that contributes to the resemblance between parents and offspring. So G, even though it's part of our breeders equation version 2, G is determined by H squared P where H squared again is our um, heritability of the trait and P is the phenotypic variance of that trait. So what the fuck does all this shit mean? Our heritability is equal to the fraction of phenotypic variance that is due to heritable generic variation. Gene did I say fucking generic? Genetic variation. And the rest of the phenotypic variance is going to be contributed um, to by either environmental variances, which are non-genetic factors and are the most important other contri contributor. Fuck. Messing up words left and right. If I were more professional, I'd restart this, but I'm 15 minutes in. I'm not going back and fucking starting over because I'm starting to screw up words halfway through. Fuck it. We press on. So, the rest of genotypic variants contributed by environmental variants and genetic variants that is not additive. So, shit caused by dominance and epistasis and shit like that. So, summing up all of this fucking breeder's equation shit. Big takeaway, without wanting to do the math and figure all this shit out. The rate of evolution is not, not determined by the number of genes that affect the trait, nor is it affected or determined by the population size. Population size and number of genes do not have an effect 
or do not determine the rate of evolution, which is kind of fucking crazy to think about. So when we talk about all this shit, only the additive genetic variance contributes directly to evolutionary change. There's all this other shit that happens that doesn't really add to it. And it doesn't really add to it because dominance variants and epistatic variants are going to be so small compared to everything else. They're not going to contribute to evolutionary change. Now, dominance variance is when the phenotype of heterozygotes is not intermediate between the phenotypes of the homozygotes. And epistatic variance is when the alleles at different loci are going to interact. But both of those, not a big deal because they don't contribute to evolutionary change. Which is just more shit that's fucking nuts. So, when we talk about how shit evolves most of the time, most traits are going to evolve rapidly using that standing genetic variation that we've talked about in the past. Stuff that that genetic variation that already exists in the population. And this is something that can blow your fucking mind, that evolution doesn't necessarily guarantee survival. Survival is more likely if you have greater standing, um, greater standing genetic variation or have a larger population. So there's where population size is going to affect something it's not affecting evolution or the rate of evolution it's affecting survival so this brings us to artificial selection and why the fuck we care about it where we are genetically improving organisms by breeding together the best individuals that's artificial selection it's basic evolution shit um, it's breeding, it's selective breeding, it's humans selecting what they want out of shit and taking it from there. It is used by biologists to study basic questions about evolution. And it has led to the f um, formation or formulation of several just super fucking general conclusions. First one. Almost all traits evolve when selected. That's not mind-blowing. Most traits, almost all of them, when they're selected, they're going to evolve. Okay, big fucking whoop. Next, selection can cause a trait to evolve far beyond its original range of variation. Okay, that's a little more interesting. If the original range of variation was like numbers 5 through 10 selection can cause a trait to evolve up to like 18, 19, 20 even further if it keeps going number 3 our third general conclusion large populations evolve faster and farther than small populations now I know what you might be thinking you might be thinking John, you said that the rate of evolution is fucking not determined by population size. And you just turned around and fucking said the large populations evolve faster and farther than the small population. Yes. B. 
because there are more individuals evolving at once. The rate at which the individuals are evolving within the population, that's not changing. That's not affected by the population size. There are just more individuals available to evolve. So calm the fuck down. And then the last general conclusion is that strong selection on one trait often has negative effects on other traits. So there's trade-offs. And we're getting into trade-offs. We're going to be there real soon. But first, we've got to talk about correlated traits before we can talk about evolutionary trade-offs. So correlated traits. If directional selection is acting on two traits, then the evolutionary change in one trait, the first one, trait one, is going to be caused... Hold on, let me fucking start that over. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just read what I wrote down so I wouldn't make mistakes. If directional selection is acting on two different traits, the evolutionary change in trait number one is caused by one one generation of selection is... Then we have an equation. So... This goes back to evolutionary change of one generation, so back to z-bar. So z-bar is going to be equal to g1 beta1 plus g12 beta2. What the fuck do all those variables mean? g1 is the additive genetic variance for trait 1. Beta1 is the selection gradient acting on trait 1. That's exact. That is Breeders' Equation version two that we talked about not too long ago, where we had z bar is equal to g b. So, when we have two traits um, that are inherited together, and directional selection is acting on both of them, we have how directional selection is working on trait one, followed by the addition of the selection gradient acting on trait 2, that's beta 2, and the genetic covariance between trait 1 and trait 2. So how strongly are those two traits inherited together? So we have the effects of shit on trait 1 plus the effects on trait 2 times how closely related or how strongly linked the two traits are to each other. If you're following along on the slides, we're on slide 15 talking about all this shit, and it's all lined up for you, all put out there, um, hopefully to make it make a little more sense. So, um, if you have a genetic covariance of zero, that's that G sub 1, 2. Those traits are inherited independently. There's no linkage to it. So if that's the case, there's not going to be any sort of correlated evolutionary change between them because then Z bar would just be equal to the effects of additive genetic variance and selection gradient acting on the first trait. If you have a positive covariance, then individuals larger than average for trait one um, will tend to have offspring that are larger for both traits. If you have a negative covariance, individuals larger for the average of trait one will have offspring um, 
that are smaller than average for the second trait. So, genetic covariance of zero, there's no connection between the traits. You have a positive covariance. Um, if you're larger for trait one, you're going to be larger for trait two. And if you have a negative covariance, you'll be larger for trait one, but smaller for trait two. And this brings us to two different ways that a trait can evolve. You can have a direct response to selection, where you have selection acting on it, or you can have an indirect response to selection, where the trait is evolving because selection on another trait to which it is correlated, which has two very interesting side effects uh, um, for indirect response. You can have a trait evolve by natural selection, even if selection doesn't act on that fucking trait. Mind fucking blown. A trait can evolve by natural selection, even if natural selection does not act on that trait. And you have that because of this correlation. If it is correlated with another trait and natural selecting, natural selection is acting on that second trait, they are getting selected for by natural selection. That fucking blew my mind. Never thought about thought about it before. Blew my fucking mind when I learned that. And then the second big thing, second big side effect, is that selection can cause a trait to evolve in a direction opposite to what selection on that trait favors. Again, because of this correlation, because of this linked inheritance. So natural selection might favor one thing, but if it favors something else even more, and that something else is negative, has a negative covariance with the first trait, it will actually evolve in the opposite direction. Second mind blown. My mind got put back together and it got blown again. So, this brings us to constraints and trade offs. So, if a trait lacks variation, it cannot respond to directional selection. So, what we say is they have an evolutionary constraint that prevents them from adapting. Because if there's no variation, there's no range for them to change upon or change within within that's the one I want to use so they can't adapt and then a trade-off an evolutionary trade-off which I mentioned earlier happens when increasing fitness in one way decreases it in another so even though you can have individual traits that show genetic variation, there can be combinations of the trait values for which there is little or no variation. And when you have all this shit starting to mix up, um, the genetic line of least resistance is going to be the combination of traits for which a population has an abundance of genetic variation. And there are two main ways that all this shit all these different traits, 
all these different loci interacting with each other to give you all this different phenotype shit. There are two sources of genetic correlations. We have pleiotropy, where you have a single locus affecting more than one trait. And this creates correlations among other types of traits. Or you have linkage disequilibrium. And remember, linkage disequilibrium is when two traits, two loci are inherited together more often than you expect by basic Mendelian inheritance. So more than like 50%. This brings us to the idea of phenotypic plasticity. And this happens when an individual's phenotype changes in response to the environment it experiences. So we visualize this with what's known as a reaction norm. It's a plot showing how environmental conditions affect how a phenotype is expressed. And it can evolve on its own. The reaction norm. Now, not all phenotypic plasticity is going to be adaptive. It's not all good. Um, so, you know, individual's phenotype changes in response to the environment. That could be the development of diseases. The phenotype changes in response to the environment. That would be maladaptive. That would be not good. No bueno. Don't fucking want that. Get rid of it. And this brings us to our last idea of the episode. Quantitative trait loci. If you read a bunch of scientific journals and they're looking for genetic factors and shit and whatnot, you will see QTL quantitative trait loci a shit ton or QTL mapping a shit ton and what it is it's when you have the regions of the genome that affect a quantitative trait those are known as your quantitative trait loci makes fucking sense they will range in size from a single nucleotide to a segment of chromosome containing a shit ton of genes it is just the loci that are associated with that quantitative trait. Now, when it comes to QTL mapping, you start with a genetic map that shows the location of genetically variable markers. Then, using that, you genotype a shit ton of individuals at these markers and measure their values for the trait. And then you correlate the variance the individuals carry at these markers with the trait phenotype. And that is quantitative trait loci mapping. And that is the end of the episode. It was all about fucking phenotypes. That brings us to our next episode, which is going to be chapter seven, all about genetic drift. So this was pretty much all about how selection works on these quantitative traits. Genetic drift. It's not selection. It is chance. So, that's a little preview of next week's episode. Kind of wrapping shit up. Um, the usual, you know, you can follow us on all the social media. Hey, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, what the fuck ever. We're at Bio for Bastards on everything. Um, here during this quarantine period that we're in, 
I've been putting some more stuff out there, trying to get some more user feedback. So interact. I'll respond. It's great. It gives me something to fucking do. Um, go ahead. And if you haven't yet, please go and rate and review and subscribe, all that shit on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, which is still giving away money um, for each review and helps other people find the show, which lets me do more and more, and it's awesome. So do that on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser, like I said. Um, Just tell people about it. I know everybody's pretty much fucking stuck at home right now, so just share, share the word. If you're bored and you want to learn a little something, my show's perfect for it. Just do it. Just share. Hey, in your next Zoom meeting, just share. That's We'll get through this shit together. We just got to rely on everybody else to help out. So uh, with that, I'm going to wrap shit up. Um, our intro and outro music is the song Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. I have been your host, John Doty. This has been Biology for Bastards. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. So you may have just heard an ad, but I can't end with an ad. So just wanted to say, follow us on Twitter at Bio4Bastards. Um, our intro and outro music is Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, tell everybody you know about it. And again, thanks for listening.